0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: G'day, it's Clint Jasper. Welcome to Country Breakfast. This morning, we open up a bitter debate about sweet and sugary fruit juice. For years, the citrus industry has expressed its extreme disappointment at how the Australian Health Star rating system treats fruit juice. Diet Cola ranks higher than natural fruit juice. But could a new technology under development at the CSIRO help fix that?
2: I guess it's just incredible that we found a way that we can actually significantly reduce the sugar content of juice through a natural process. So that means there's no additives, there's no sweeteners
1: involved, and you're able to get the nutritional benefit of juice without as much sugar. Before we get there, though, Serena Locke is here with this week's Rural News. Good morning, Serena. Hi there, Clint. On Tuesday, large swathes of New Zealand's North Island were hit with the destructive and deadly winds, rains and swells caused by Cyclone Gabriel. What was the fallout?
3: There were some terrifying scenes emerging during that day, Clint. Cyclone Gabriel came just weeks after the Auckland floods so New Zealand's really been feeling what we hope is the tail end of this la Nina weather phenomena Hawkes Bay on the eastern side of the North island copped around 173 millimeters of rain on Monday night alone and I mean in some cases that was doubled by the you know next few days and not far from there Napier airport on the country's east coast received 175 mils of rain in 24 hours that's the second wettest day since 1950 according according to their Met service. Now on the other side of the island, Fitianga dairy farmer Dirk Sealing said the howling wind took down trees, gusts up to 120 kilometers per hour, and he told Radio New Zealand that row closures and power outages meant he'd just have to dump
4: his milk. I mean the cows fortunately are on once a day at the moment so we can put it off during the day but then we can always um, ask the neighbours if they have power and we can run our cows through there but uh, yeah the cows do need to be milked otherwise they get very uncomfortable so we're just uh, keeping our
5: fingers crossed.
1: They're actually having a really bad time in lots of the same parts of that island because of something called forestry slash. This was a little interesting thing I picked up on when I was reporting on this on Tuesday. Essentially because of the really wet summer, it's come at the same time that lots of plantation trees had been harvested. So when the rain came down, so too did tons of muddy silt and all of these logs that were waiting to be picked up, which has just amplified what had already been a really damaging event because the mud will take Take ages to clean up, and the logs which were in the flood water just smashed through roads and fences and houses and, and actually stopped water moving over the landscape in ways that it should have. So, there's some farmers around Gisborne and Hawke's Bay who are absolutely seething about that at the moment.
3: I think my sense of it is, as well, it's taken out communication lines. Mm. So, yeah, we haven't had a lot of reports from there, a lot of vision, only social media vision. So I think we're going to get some of the wash-up reported soon. Yeah,
1: Yeah, there's some good photos on the Radio New Zealand website of just landscapes strewn with all these logs, like you couldn't even get a four-wheel drive over it.
3: Yeah, well, that's going to damage not just farmland, but also, you know, sea, you know, the the environment in the sea.
1: Mm. 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 Moving on, plans to build one of the world's largest prawn farms on a remote cattle station in the Northern Territory appear well and truly dead in the water.
3: Yes, so this is Sea Farms. It's confirmed that it will no longer fund Project Sea Dragon, an extremely ambitious project that aimed to produce 100,000 tonnes of black tiger prawns every year at Lagoon Station near the WA NT border. Project Sea Dragon has fallen into voluntary administration and its parent company Sea Farms has requested a trading suspension from the Australian Stock Exchange. Now the project was a decade in the planning, attracted $50 million from the NT government and money poured in from the federal government and also Western Australia too to develop roads. There are concerns the failure of this prawn farm will dent investor confidence in the Northern Territory but the Territory's Infrastructure Minister Eva Lawler says the roads built out to say Keith River will still be there for developing and linking the area.
6: That road links the WA border and then moves into the Territory that is about that stage three of the ORD, so again Land Corporation put out um, an expression of interest which has been filled around farming in that area, around cattle um, and development in that area. There's also communities in that area, there's also stations in that area, there's also possibilities around future gas development.
1: Bird flu is sweeping the globe, killing millions of birds, both wild and farmed, on every continent except here in Australia, but are
3: we really at risk? And as you say, millions of wild and farmed birds have been killed by avian flu in the past year. The UK, there's been at least 200 cases where it's been recorded in mammals, so really jumping species there, such as otters and foxes. It's a zoonotic disease, as that indicates. Yes, we have our own strains of bird flu, but they're not usually this highly pathogenic variant. Now, as recently as 2020 and 21, about half a million birds were culled in Australia in our largest ever outbreak of uh, domestic avian influenza. But Deakin University Professor Marcel Clausen of Ecology, is a professor of ecology, he ran a study reviewing more than 10,000 birds over the past decade in Australia and found that waterfowl and shorebirds were common carriers of avian influenza virus and it could be passed on to other bird species as well.
2: We also have shorebirds in the millions that migrate between Asia and Australia. And they form, a yeah, the shorebirds themselves don't form a threat, but they could form the bridge for this virus to come to Australia. So we really have to be on guard, so to say.
1: I remember that 2020 outbreak came when we were all in lockdown here in Melbourne from COVID. And then it was bird flu that had to have all those birds culls. It was a very what next kind of situation.
3: Yeah. That's right. And and mostly it's being dealt with in Europe and across Asia and we haven't seen this highly pathogenic variety but um, you all, know all the it news could be junkies,
1: on the all the news junkies would know it's a big cause behind the really expensive US egg price at the moment which everyone's complaining about over there.
3: Oh right, I hmm. had no idea.
7: <laughs> yep. <Yeah. laughs>
1: Hey, the floods across Australia have devastated our roads and road transport is what keeps us fed and our economy running. We're heading towards a federal budget. What is the rural sector wanting in this area?
3: Yeah, so as you say, from Kimberley and WA to Western Victoria through New South Wales into Queensland, 23 local government areas have experienced flooding disasters over the past few years. Now, four of the country's most influential lobby groups have teamed up to put pressure on the federal government to inject $5.5 billion into improving the nation's road network over the next four years. Now, it's a huge job and it's largely led by local councils who have tens of thousands of kilometres of roads they need to repair because of the floods and wild weather. Now, Zach Whale from Grain Growers says the group's request includes $300 million on repairing a section dubbed first and last mile roads.
8: That's a critical one. We hear so much about first and last mile, often the middle part of the network um, like imagine your, your big trunk roads and your, your national highways, often they can handle um, high productivity, but the first mile, so from the mailbox um, to your first point of receival or your local market, um, or the last bit, once you actually get off that big arterial road um, to where the, where the goods are going, that's the critical bit that actually needs um, some work. And finally, targeted funding through the Roads of Strategic Importance Program to improve long-term climate resilience of freight networks in general.
1: I was driving back from Northern Vic about a fortnight ago and the roads are in shocking shape and they had areas where the traffic was slowed down to 40 k's and as you do when you're on a country road by yourself you're like oh maybe 60 will be fine but after the bump I hit in the little Hyundai High car I was definitely obeying those 40 k's from then on.
3: Yeah, well, that's right. And I drive the Hume Highway, which is largely fine. And so that's the message that our big major federally funded highways and even state funded highways are OK and they're fixed quite quickly. It's those first mile and last mile or first kilometre, last kilometre that are really um, impassable and they need more money spent on them. So yeah, it's an interesting point.
1: They do indeed. Moving on, a long-mooted ban on glyphosate is about to come into force in Europe and agricultural groups and farmers are warning food production will fall dramatically. What will be the flow-on effect here in Australia?
3: Yes, so this is the common weed killer developed by Monsanto as Roundup, now known by its ingredient, glyphosate. Now it's been the center of several court cases. Billions have been paid out in injury claims. Now, Victorian-based crop scientist, Harm Van Ries, traveled through Europe and North America last year to look at what farmers are doing to try to manage reduced access to glyphosate. And he says, if glyphosate is banned in the EU, farmers won't want to be disadvantaged by Australian produce, you know coming in that's been grown using glyphosate as a you know that would disadvantage them before glyphosate australian farmers used to rip up the soil with plows creating massive dust storms and destroying that thin crust of topsoil here now harm van Rees reminds us that this product has allowed farmers to be much gentler on soils
9: all the benefits from no-till farming will lose those because There is no alternative to glyphosate. I know that we've got, obviously, we've got other products on the market that we have used in the past and continue to use, but some of those are already banned. For example, Paraquat has already been banned in most jurisdictions around the world, but we still have it. But none of those alternatives will replace glyphosate as it is.
1: Our colleague Warwick Long travelled through Germany in 2016 when this debate was kind of kicking off and went to some farms that were kind of voluntarily stopping using glyphosate just to show what it would look like and they were just choked with weeds and you could barely see the actual crop planted in amongst all the weeds because they were just uncontrollable. So it's been a long time in the making this one.
3: It has French farmers complain as well. Now some is conventionally farmed. I think the point was, you know, you can still use ploughs in deep soil. Yeah, but but the we same can't does hear. not occur here <laughs> where we've got a very thin topsoil. So thin yeah.
1: and old and poor. Yeah. If you were a savvy, maybe unethical businessman in the dairy processing sector, you'd maybe do a, a car company style, buying up all those patents and just sitting on them.
3: Oh, like ev- electric vehicles?
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 I Stifle it out that way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Serena, Valentine's Day was this week, and we heard from an outback grazier who thinks the day is an important tradition in his house and family.
3: Yeah, so he's had 41 years of marriage, three kids, a successful cattle operation and Paul Fordyce, he chalks it up uh, a big part of his success to his partnership with his wife, Leanne. Paul says he and Leanne arrived on their remote station more than 40 years ago and were very happy despite how tough it was and their relationship made for a better community.
9: Well, we did a lot of years early in the bush and they were hard years. They, they gave us a very strong formation. I didn't want to live my whole life in one place. I know that I'm going to be dead for 60 million years, so I just wanted to make sure that I, I tick a few boxes and live a life. Put that
3: on a Hallmark
1: card. <laughs> <laughs> a true romantic.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Love it.
1: Serena, thank you for that wrap of rural news this week.
3: Yeah, good to
10: talk, Clint. What's it like standing in a fusion reactor?
9: So you would like to make your way out of it as quick as possible.
10: How does it feel firing a high-powered laser from a mountaintop?
9: Immediately starts smoking and burning.
10: Join me, Carl Smith, for a new series to meet the scientists living and working in off-limits, hard-to-reach and remarkable corners of the Earth.
6: A very old safe and it's a really dark room.
10: That's Strange Frontiers, a special series for The Science Show, Saturdays at noon on RN or on the ABC
2: Listen app.
1: Today we're heading to an historic timber pub in country Queensland where we'll meet a grazier turned publican who's restored the grand old pub that's the pride of its local town. And he's managed to keep it free of pokies. We'll check in on the strawberry harvest at a Tasmanian farm where it's not humans but robots hard at work picking, weighing and packing the ripe red berries. And we'll visit an unlikely sanctuary for native bees on top of a concrete multi-level car park in a regional city. The team behind this urban garden plot are hoping to inspire others to embrace biodiversity in their own backyards.
11: We're basically showcasing what you can do with any space. You can put it anywhere because these garden beds are raised, the the plants have plenty of soil and as long as the bees have got plenty of food around, they'll survive. And so we're really showcasing that the urban environment shouldn't restrict native vegetation, it should be integrated with it. And if we can put it on a car park, you can put it in your backyard or in your front yard or on the public streets.
1: We'll meet those visionaries who are pursuing their bold plan for an oasis for bees far from farmland. That is coming up. First today, we're headed to northern Tasmania, where reporter Rick Eaves met a trio of grandmas who are devoting their lives to caring for rescued and orphaned dogs. He bumped into them as they took their pups for a stroll along a riverside walkway in Devonport.
12: There goes roller the girl. Quick head count here: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, should be nine. Be nine. Should be nine. <laughs> I
6: think we've lost any on the way.
12: There should be nine amazingly well-behaved little doggies here.
6: There's two that feel quite threatened when other dogs come. They're rescue dogs. You don't know the background. I'm Diane
12: Jordan. Anna Sputtery. I'm Christina Daka Bits. We got three prams stacked full of dogs and a few more on the ground. Well, At the doggy park we have ten,
6: sometimes eleven, don't we? Yes.
12: They're all rehomed and very much loved. I walked past you, saw three ladies pushing prams thinking, oh isn't that nice? Getting together to take the kids out and a couple of dogs and then I looked more closely and thought prams are full of dogs. <laughs> There's six dogs in the prams. Made me do a, a quick come back and chat to you. How did this all start happening? Right.
6: Christina and Diane have been friends for years. I met the girls at La Trobe Dog Park about 18 months ago and then we decided to walk along here. Archie, this little boy, uh, he's got leg trouble. There's some with arthritis, some with heart problems, so they go for a ride in the pram.
13: Charlie, he's on a diet. He was in a wheelchair and I got a phone call. He was originally from a puppy farm and instead of taking one day for him to sit on my knee, it took four years and he's still very timid. You can see it in his eyes. Yes. Yeah. And I was yeah. so sad. What a beautiful dog. He is. Charlie's angels. I mean,
12: there were three of them, there's three <laughs> of you. I not believe it. That's what
6: Christina said this morning. That's what
12: Christina said? <laughs> <laughs> oh, really. Charlie's so. <laughs>
3: angels. <laughs> Christine when I first met her she had eight rescue
12: dogs oh, Christine the quiet one the one who said I might
13: not say much <laughs> that Christine yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's Christine how many dogs do you have at home six. I had eight. People just ring and say, can you take a dog? And the word no wants to come out, but yes comes out instead. <laughs>
12: do you remember your first dog?
13: Yes, Sammy, when I was about nine, took a Terrier. It goes back that far? Oh, not with a whole heap of dogs. Mum wouldn't let me. I'd, I'd bring stray animals home, and when I got home from school, they were gone. And then I married a man who loves dogs. question came in on the first date, did it? Just
12: slipped it in. What do you think of dogs? <laughs> <laughs> me, love my dog. Love me, love my dog. How many dogs do you have at home? One. One? <laughs> Uh, You're that clever person who loves dogs but knows how to get lots of dogs around you without having to look after them all all
13: the time. Don't have to take them home and feed them.
12: How come they are all so beautifully quiet and well behaved little doggies? I would have thought there'd be a couple more of them you know, experiencing some trouble because of their past.
6: I think it's the love they receive and surprisingly they all get on. Once in a while we get a roast chicken and go back to Christina's place (laughs) and we break it up and they all sit round in a circle and wait their turn Little Benny here, he came from a town up in North Queensland. He was found wandering the streets at six months old and he's found his way to Tasmania now. After going through four shelters, Christina has to have a kennel licence and so she's got to jump through the hoops, but she's willing to do that. Sick dogs, old dogs. I I just say to people don't go and buy a dog for $3,000, go to the pound.
12: Speaking of jumping through hoops, these guys do a little bit of that, don't
13: they?
6: Well, Benny does. (laughs) Latrobe Park, there's a agility course there he just took it upon himself one day we've had a lot of people stop us along the track asking are they up for adoption we said no so we came across a couple one day and they were desperate for a little dog and in the end christina's son-in-law found one he has found his forever home the first night he jumped in bed and slept between them My name's Bernice and this is our little rescue, Rusty. I ran into them and they had 10 dogs between them. I said, oh, can't you spare one? (laughs) And through them, we found Rusty and he, he was actually had a bad start. He was in a chicken coop and he'd been a little bit neglected. He's actually turned into a beautiful, beautiful dog. He's a Pomeranian Chihuahua. There's odd, odd bits and pieces. Um, he's a bit frightened of men. Newspaper he's terrified of. Whether he's whacked with it, I don't know. And even with his food, he'll take a piece of food and run into his bed and, and eat it and then run out and get another piece.
12: That's a very careful way of doing it. It's
6: a very careful way of yeah. doing it. I find food everywhere now.
12: He <laughs> deserves a home like this. we very much in love with him.
6: We're walking along here, and you might see some grumpy people, and suddenly you see the smile on their face. Yeah,
12: dark. He oh. comes. yes. It'll be interesting. Battle stations, ladies.
14: Well
6: organised, <laughs>
12: I have to say. No, we a dog here? Yeah, no.
13: except on... No, Gizmo, little... Smiling assassin. The, the
12: little one down on the bottom yes. with the, t- the head out the bottom of the pram. Yes, <laughs> that one. He bites. So i named him the
6: Smiling Assassin because he looks so cute and everybody wants to pat him.
13: Josie. Her dad died. We knew one another and it was always an understanding I would take his dog if anything happened to him. Then Gussie Boy, his Arnold's best friend died on the day of the floods in 2016? His... Or... Yes. Yeah. And he was looking for a home. I knew who to call. Yes. <laughs>
7: Travel 114 years into the past. A time when roads weren't reliable, rail lines ruled, and the brand new Kilkeven Junction Hotel was the place where locals gathered for commerce, conversation. And entertainment.
4: Originally it was just a railway hotel and a railway station opposite. It was open for business in 1909. It was shut for a short time. It had owners but no one to run it or lease it. But failing that, it's been open since 1909 and it's still the original building.
7: And the piano in its dining room now has someone to play it. A publican who really cares about this character-filled, beautiful old wooden pub.
4: A lot of these pubs of this era have all been burnt to the ground. There's bugger all pubs left like this in Queensland and I've always loved old pubs.
7: Grazier Jackson MacDonald owns what's now known as the Thebine Hotel. An hour and a half drive north from Queensland's Sunshine Coast, it's off the beaten track. (laughs) There's not much to Thebine, population 145 according to the 2021 census. It has a few remaining railway workers cottages, the occasional house and in pride of place, the pub. It was looking a little unloved until Jackson McDonald stepped in to ensure that future generations will get to enjoy it.
4: This pub game was something I never expected to get into. But anyway, it happened and it's been a good thing.
7: He made his money in the cattle industry and owned properties in the area for 20 years before buying the Thibine Hotel.
4: It was for sale for a fair war and um, just decided to buy it and keep it in local hands. Save foreigners happen to buy it. That was in
7: 2019. Jackson McDonald's not revealing how much he paid, but says he's invested just as much again into renovating the beautifully crafted building and adding a flash new deck out the front to make the most of the view of the mountains and the trains still rolling by.
4: There's 17 people working here, including myself, now, so yeah, it's a pretty big thing for a local community like this. And everyone is local, everyone lives within 10 15 minutes of here, so you know, that's a lot of people that don't have. Have to travel to Gympie or Mariborough for work. It's turned out a, a thriving little place.
7: Large chandeliers now grace the ceiling in the hallway and dining room where historic photos line the walls. Visitors feast their eyes on local memorabilia fit for a museum.
4: Just breathing a bit of fresh life back into it, but trying to keep that grand old feel about it, you know.
7: Oh, great old stairs. So these are the
4: originals? Yeah. One of the last jobs the painters are doing is we're sanding that right back to bare timber, so it's going to be a polished timber staircase. So. Do you hire
7: these rooms yeah, out? Yeah,
4: yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so cute. So there's eight rooms upstairs here. Yeah, oh, this room's being used at the moment.
7: Oh, sorry about that.
4: <laughs>
7: Excuse <laughs> us.
4: Out <laughs> here <laughs> um, on the front veranda, It's a pretty good outlook.
7: How nice is that?
4: You look at some of the carpentry work and all your window checks and stuff above the windows and all the French doors upstairs, you would never be able to pay a carpenter to do that today. Some pretty incredible craftsmanship here.
7: Born and bred local Stuart Volmerhausen and his wife Linda couldn't be happier.
4: Great country pub, just need a little bit of a pick up and it's changed. The
15: people that are travelling through Seabine and calling in, you can stay at the pub overnight and at the back and camp and travellers from everywhere, all over the place. turn up for lunch on Saturdays, the pub is just a great friendly country pub.
7: And what do
6: you enjoy about it most Linda? Talking to people, people you never get to meet. The other night there was a couple there from Canada. You just get to meet amazing, amazing people.
15: Well, I've been here all my life, but I didn't realise what we're actually sitting on. I think you could travel a long way and not find a
4: little community network like this one now. We've got a a whole bunch of oldies around this area, like from 70 to 90-year-old. They're all back at the pub now. They'll book out the tables Friday night and it's good to see all those oldies come back that basically haven't been here for years, you know. And to see them out and socialise them, yeah, it does give me a bit of heart.
7: The only downside, the annual insurance bill.
4: It's by far our biggest expense. Basically there's only two companies in the world that will insure timber pubs in Australia now and Lloyds of London has pretty much the only one that'll underwrite pub so it is a massive expense.
7: So how much does that cost a year?
4: Oh 60 odd thousand a year. It's a huge huge expense.
7: And despite this Jackson McDonald's made his pub a tourism destination without getting his patrons to gamble.
4: For all these big companies taking over these pubs it's all about getting pokies in there which to me is not what a pub should be about. There's no pokies here, so we survive solely on food and and alcohol sales, basically.
7: And country hospitality, which is pretty nice, isn't it? Not having to rely on gambling to make a living.
4: Yeah, true. You talk to a lot of operators today and everyone says you, you can't survive without pokies, but we're proof you can. There's no doubt about it, you, you can.
7: He's enjoyed the process so much, he's now bought Tyro's Royal Hotel and the Commercial Hotel in Biggenden.
4: This place will always be the pride of the fleet. It's like my home, really. And, uh, no, I do love the places. You'll never see it sold, I can promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, no, it'll be something that'll be kept in the family for sure.
1: Jackson McDonald, the publican of the Thebine Hotel, he was speaking with Jennifer Nichols. You can see more on that story, including photos of the pub after extensive renovations on the historic timber building. It's had a real spruce up. Just head online to the RN homepage abc.net.au slash RN and look for Country Breakfast under Programs. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN this morning. Still to come, we'll meet the team creating a home for bees in the heart of a regional city and we'll hear about how robotic harvesters are making light work of picking and packing fresh strawberries.
0: On this Tasmanian berry farm, ripe fruit are being picked without the need for back-breaking manual labour. Our
16: robot will, uh, will uh, scan the crop and see if it can find any ripe berries, which is red berries of a certain degree that we have put in our settings. It will then try to find a clear vector so it can pick the berry, so it has to see the stalk clearly, and then it will attempt to pick it. Once it's picked a berry, it will dip it into a box in the middle of, of the chassis which we call the inspection chamber, which has a 360 degree camera which take a photo all the way around that it would make a quality assessment and decide whether this is a good quality berry or if this has to be put in the waste bin. And after that it will put it in a punnet in the tray on the edge of the robot. So while it's scanning inside this uh, chamber, it will also do an estimation of the uh, how heavy is the berry, so it will know what punnet in the tray it will put it on to reach the target punnet weight. It travels on caterpillar tracks and uh, that way it can move in quite difficult terrain and you don't really have to prepare your, your ground for, to accommodate them.
0: Hello, I'm Larissa Smith and I'm watching the berry harvest on this large farm at Cressy. As robots pick strawberries at a rate of roughly four per minute, the site manager here is Eva Tilderkrist, and she is explaining that the robots are working with little need for human help.
16: At the moment, we're managing eight robots per person. That's hopefully going to go up to twelve towards the end of the season.
0: How are they powered?
16: Two strong batteries inside them, which uh, will give you a good, good amount of a. Uh, I think almost up to eight hours of running time. And then we will bring them back into a shipping container charging station and charge them overnight. They're all connected to, uh, to a Wi-Fi system, but that's more for us to be able to, to remotely control them from the operators having a tablet in their head and, and they can have a good overview of how the robots are doing. They know how many berries they pick. They know if it's time to swap the trays out and uh, they can identify any fault coming up but they're running on a, on a computer inside them. They're not just picking as they run up the road, they're obviously taking loads and loads of images to find where the berry is, but that, those images can also be pro- processed to determine the health of your crop and also do yield forecasting so you know how much harvest you expect in the future.
0: They don't pick as fast as your staff here, no. So what's the financial advantage to having these robots?
16: They don't pick as fast as a human, but they don't need to pick as fast as a human because they don't need to be paid a minimum wage <laughs> to put it like that. And they're not a replacement for workforce, they're more of a, of a supplement for your capacity on your farm and economically it's a it's a reliable way of, uh, of harvesting because you will know your cost of harvest because of the constant rate you're harvesting at. And obviously having many machines per operator will also bring the cost down. It's a peace of mind for the growers to have in case you can get the workforce need. For example, last year we, when we had COVID, we just could not get enough people on the farm to do the work and we struggled to keep up with the harvest. And obviously robots don't get COVID, they don't roll an ankle, they, uh, they're pretty reliant workers.
0: How often would the robots make a mistake, pick a berry that's the wrong colour for example?
16: At the moment we're seeing about one every hundred berries, which is very, very low compared to human pickers. They do probably rather miss a few berries, which is something we're always working on, but they seem to pick a good good quality. It's a work in progress, It's, it's it's not something that's going to happen overnight it's uh, something that gradually is going to be introduced into farming i believe the same as uh, 150 years ago no one would use a tractor or consider using a tractor for farming and now it's a part of everyday farming life
10: The rooftop of a multi-level car park in the middle of a city may seem an unlikely home for bees. But a few years ago, bartender Connor Teven had a bold vision to create an oasis for bees in an urban area. It all started when he was working in a gin bar in the New South Wales regional city of Wollongong. It had a big emphasis on native ingredients, and that sparked an interest in Australian native plants and herbs, which then turned into a love for the bees that pollinate them. Fast forward a few years and Connor's dream has become a reality. Hello, I'm Justin Huntsdale, and I'm headed to check out Connor's urban bee sanctuary.
5: So we're on top of the Wollongong shopping centre. We've set up a bit of a garden, a beautiful space donated by the mall. We've got a few garden beds, there's more to come, a few plants, and most importantly we've got a couple of Tetragonula carbonaria beehives. So they're the native bees to this area that also produce honey or sugar bag.
10: This seems like an odd place to set up a bee sanctuary. It's a car park, essentially, open to the elements and quite hot, I assume, when the sun's out. What, what's it like to, to set up a bee area in a car park? Is that a, Does that present a whole lot of different challenges for you?
5: Yeah, you're right about the heat. That was definitely a challenge for us, but we're finding ways to help the bees out. So having well-established plants to actually offer some shade, give the bees a bit of a rest. We want to give them some time to dip in the pool, essentially, Uh, bees like a little bit of water. So something that's gonna help them cool down. But bees are very resourceful. If they need something to cool down, they're happy to grab a bead of sweat off your brow. And that's basically like a bee energy drink i'm a bartender by trade and an opportunity came about thanks to beam Santuri and their program the blend for a five thousand dollar grant i painstakingly worked on that grant application and it paid off i got the entire money and that helped pay for the bees and uh insurances and a lot of the less fun stuff. We've also managed to pay for this space through donations. We set up a fundraiser at My Old Bar Berts and Deaths and just the goodwill of others and that really goes to show that it's not just a name, we are the B Team. Connor has recruited helpers to his B
10: Team, like Jacob Williams.
11: Our intent was to get some garden beds established where the hives are, but uh, because we're in the CBD, there's there's quite a varied uh, number of vegetation. Uh, so we've got the church over, over to the north of us and then we've also got the mall directly south, which has got some good flower beds and planted beds. Ultimately, the, the whole goal of, of this project also is just to boost the biodiversity of the CBD, add some more native plants and some native insects that are desperately needed in, in the Wollongong CBD.
10: Native bees might be something people don't know too much about. Tell us about them and how they compare to the, the European bees.
11: These bees are pretty special. They're stingless and they're also really small. They're pretty unique and a European bee can, can yield a lot more honey, but uh, this species is the only species that actually creates a, a spiral comb, so unlike on a frame. And then the sugar bag, it's probably about a kilo in a year. It's probably the maximum that you're going to get. So it's, they don't produce much, but by gosh, that honey tastes good. <laughs> and how important are they for pollination, though, as well? Oh, yeah, extremely important for, for pollination. Because they're so small, they can get into a lot of the native plants a lot better than a European bee can. That also means that those plants will fruit more, and flower more it encourages huge amounts of biodiversity within within an area
10: and what do you see the end goal being here i mean we've got three beds set up there's two hives it's still a car park what's your vision for this place
11: i'm an indigenous person and uh, one of the things that i that i care deeply about is is teaching people to care for country and so a space like this is perfect for people to come up and and walk around and experience and see what a native garden can do and what native bees are capable of it's all about education and adding to the biodiversity of the region so we want to provide a space that people can sort of learn about native plants and say oh well actually i like that plant it's probably going to do better than some european one that i've got in my garden so if we can start educating the public about the importance of natives that would be the goal
10: and kind of there's a fence up here as well so the bees are a little protected from
5: people but when it is a bit more established will this be something that people can just come and access? It most definitely will be a wonderful place to come and relax. You can learn a little bit or you can just take your lunch. We'll have some tables and chairs and whatnot. It's definitely a welcoming space for people to come learn, relax, enjoy.
10: One of the things I love about it is that both of you guys have jobs outside of this. This is not a, a commercial venture at all. It's basically just your donation to society, isn't
5: it? We do get a sense of doing something great for the community, which is wonderful. But of course, we've got other jobs that pay our rent the payment is is our contribution
11: back to society and back to the environment because everyone has to pay their debt to the land that we live on and these bees were a long time coming too weren't they it's
5: been about two years now since i ordered them but now is kind of the worst time in history to be a bee the bee population has been in decline since the end of world war Two, but now in particular with colony collapse disorder terrible weather we've almost missed a few summers here where bees need that time to go out, forage food, um, expand their hives, but most recently the terrible varroa mite which has been going around. But we're thankful that we at the moment have a safe space for some bees. They finally arrived, (laughs) they are varroa mite free and (laughs) they're going to have enough food to last them
10: jacob is it more uh, about showing what's what can be done with a space like this is it, it's almost a bit of a statement isn't it to take something that seems so far from agriculture which is a concrete car park yeah, yeah. and turning it into a little urban farm
11: oh yes of course so this space yeah who would have thought a car park into a bee farm or a, bee, a native garden so we're, we're basically showcasing what you can do with any space you can put it in you could even put it in right on the beach. You can put it anywhere because these, these garden beds are raised, the, the plants have plenty of soil and as long as the bees have got plenty of food around, they'll survive. And so it's, we're really showcasing that the urban environment shouldn't restrict native vegetation, it should be integrated with it. And if we can put it on a car park, you can put it in your backyard or in your front yard or on the public streets.
1: Jacob Williams from the Bee Team Wollongong. He was speaking to Justin Huntsdale at the Urban Bee Sanctuary. He's helped to establish on top of a multi-level car park in the regional city. For more on all of the stories you've heard today, check out the Country Breakfast page on the RN website. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash rn.
14: Available now on ABC Listen. Enjoy our library of great Aussie audiobooks all summer long. Free to stream on the ABC Listen app with a collection of fiction and non-fiction titles, including The Spare Room by Helen Garner.
2: She
6: tossed her red wool shawl round her shoulders, raised her chin and sparkled at me, as if we were Settling in at the gin palace for a martini and an hour's gossip.
11: A great range
14: of ABC audiobooks, free to stream on the ABC Listen app.
1: The CSIRO is working on bringing down the natural sugar content of fruit drinks by up to 70%. It's a big relief to citrus growers who were shocked by a review of Australia's Star rating system that gave fruit juice a worse rating than Diet Cola. Now the citrus industry wants the whole Star rating system scuttled, as Tina Quinn reports.
14: Sugar is a major health problem here in Australia, seen as a leading contributor to a number of diseases, including obesity and diabetes.
2: And what we see in Australia is that half of Australians are consuming more free sugar than the recommended daily amount. But actually, people want to consume less. It's just not that easy.
14: Gemma Howes from the CSIRO is currently working on a project to reduce the natural sugar content of fruit juices.
2: So if I take an example, like a single bottle of juice that's quite commonly available, um, it may not have any added sugar, but it can still have up to 10 teaspoons of naturally occurring sugar. And I think that's why people are often very surprised when they hear this. So I think that's why when we saw the opportunity and this research, it's, I guess it's just incredible that we found a way that we can actually significantly reduce the sugar content of juice through a natural process. So that means there's no additives, there's no sweeteners involved, and you're able to get the nutritional benefit of juice without as much
14: sugar. Two years ago, food regulators had reduced the five-star rating of fruit juice to just two stars, meaning it ranked as less healthy than Diet Cola. It came as a huge blow to fruit juice producers, who contribute almost three-quarters of a billion dollars to Australia's economy.
9: Obviously, the industry is extremely disappointed with the health star rating. And we don't hold any faith in the health star rating at all, to be honest. The focus you know, on one element of a product's nutritional value is not useful for anyone. And this is meant to be a communication tool to the community. It's been hijacked by anti-sugar people. And I think it's um, a real disappointment for our industry and many other industries who face skewed responses to the health stars that are p- applied to them. Um, and I think it's, you know, bureaucratically gone mad, to be honest.
14: Citrus Australia Chief Executive Nathan Hancock argues that the nutritional benefits of fruit juice far outweighs the concerns around its high sugar content.
9: The fact still remains that a freshly squeezed orange or mandarin or uh, any other citrus type that um, people are consuming contains a bevy of nutritional value that is being disregarded and will be soon be releasing through Horn Innovation funded research. Some information on the fantastic nutritional benefits that uh, come from citrus that far outweigh any concerns that people should have about sugar.
14: Many dietitians would agree with you, and in fact did when this new Health Star rating came down on, on, on fruit juices two years ago. Uh, but many others, including CIRO, say that the overconsumption of sugar is a leading contributor to the burden of chronic disease globally. Can you understand CIRO's point here? Can you understand why they have concerns about the level of sugar in? in fruit juices?
9: Oh, absolutely. I can see their point. But I think that, that the focus is on a natural product such as juice when, when we all know that sugar is hidden in so many products and, and sometimes not even hidden, blatantly obvious. And the consumption of those things uh, is up to people's discretion. So unfairly um, focusing on an, on an orange juice, which has naturally occurring uh, sugars at, at the naturally occurring rate is, I think, demonizing a product. Um, when there are so many other manufactured products that are deliberately hiding sugar in there to enhance the flavor to encourage people to eat them. And I think that's the focus that uh, our government should be should be having, not meddling around with um, natural products such, such as orange juice. There are so many benefits and long, long-term studies that have shown um, increases in mental health, positive outcomes for people who are pregnant, the... Absolutely zero connection to obesity and all of these other things that are uh, we're lumped into when people talk about sugar. Natural 100% orange juice, and I'm not talking about fruit drinks or um, reconstituted um, juices, I'm talking about 100% natural orange juice that you buy in a fresh shelf at your retailer uh, made in Australia with 100% Australian oranges. is a unique product. When consumed in, a, in in moderation, just like consuming anything else in moderation, has a lot of health benefits for you and i think the focus that the health star rating brings to these products is is misguided and i think it um, it's well and truly time that that actual system is actually reviewed and scuttled to-
14: do you think what's also possibly, I guess, uh, sullied the reputation of, of fruit juices is the fact that many companies put a lot of additives into it on top of the already high natural sugar content of the drink. Do you think that's made things a little bit more difficult as well?
9: There's a failure in our system in terms of the labelling of product and the, the true clarification of what um, you're purchasing, especially if you go to the ambient aisle. So if you're in not in the refrigerated rated section, if you're buying fruit drinks and and juices uh, from the shelves uh, uh, in in your supermarket that aren't chilled, then you're buying something that is not 100% fresh orange juice or or any other kind of juice that's along that in that section. They are reconstituted, come from a a source of material that has water added to it. It comes from other countries. So I think that is the product that needs better labelling and needs clearer messaging around what it is you're
14: purchasing. CSIRO's newly developed technology converts the naturally occurring sugar and fruit juice into complex carbohydrates like fibre, therefore reducing the sugar content by up to 70%. But Gemma House assures us that the nutritional benefits provided by natural sugar won't be lost.
2: So I think in terms of the kind of nutritional profile, vitamins, things like fiber, that's what we've been able to manage to maintain. And I think it's really the opportunity here is how do we reduce that excess sugar consumption in people's diets? And this is one way that hopefully can help. So could this
14: actually restore the five-star health rating for fruit juices?
2: So that is definitely an ambition that we have. So we've got to work through that as part of um, product optimization and the research. But yes, given that the health star rating looks at um, sugar levels within the calculation, there should be an improvement.
14: How far off are we from seeing this research implemented on, on supermarket shelves?
2: So the research is definitely in progress. So we've made great progress so far, but it's still... There's still optimisation work that we're working on, Um, but we've just, I think the project team has made it onto On Accelerate, which is the SIRO's accelerator programme, so I think the accelerator programme will help us as we start to explore how do we bring this to market as well.
14: While it will still be some time before low sugar juice hits supermarket shelves, the On Accelerate programme will give the project a clear path to commercialisation.
1: That report from Tina Quinn, and I remember being a rookie reporter in a big citrus producing area of South Australia when banning sugar from your diet was at its cultural peak, when those books by Sarah Wilson and Michael Mosley were very popular, and all the attention turned to orange juice, and there were some very upset and angry citrus growers as calls to you know rated as high sugar drinks came out it's all we talked about on the rural report for weeks the current health star rating system which was the subject of tina quinn's piece stems from a change made by the australian and new zealand ministerial forum on food regulation in early 2021 The latest report card on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan has shown that there's barely been any improvement in the last six months, and important elements of the basin plan won't be done by a critical 2024 deadline. Released earlier this week, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority's report of the last six months was highly critical of New South Wales for holding up progress of the plan by failing to submit critical water-sharing plans. Warwick Long is speaking to the CEO of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Andrew McConville.
8: Yeah, our task is to report transparently on progress and you know, while we found some minor improvement in some areas, yep, there has been a lack of progress um, in others. So you know, it's important we get that information out there to be able to ensure that people understand there's still more work to be done, absolutely. So
15: what are you saying about the state of the plan and the ability now to hit the 2024 targets?
8: Well, look, I think, you know, there's been some positive progress in New South Wales water resource plans. You know, at the end of December, there were four plans accredited. We've seen, you know, some progress on the supply and constraints measures uh, in terms of projects being underway and completed, but there still is a significant amount of work to be done there and then also in the northern basin uh, some of the measures as part of the northern basin toolkit are running behind schedule. so what we're saying is we've got to keep the shoulder to the wheel because making progress across all areas is absolutely critical to seeing the basin plan delivered in full work.
15: You've got about 16 months before the June 2024 deadline is hit what is the least likely to be achieved by then?
8: Well look I think you know we've we've Came out last November and, and, and talked about the uh, the Sidland projects and, and that we we do see that there will uh, be a shortfall there. Uh, you know we won't know exactly what that is until we get to, to 2024 and make that reconciliation. But so these are certainly- the projects
15: that the, the states put forward to say we'll do some work if you that's reduce correct. the amount of water that is required for the basin. Yeah, authority. that
8: that that that's correct. So you know it's a bit like am getting some water on credit and then and then the projects are the repayment of that. So. We we announced in, in November that we felt that there'd be a, a shortfall of somewhere between 190 and 300 gigs and, and you know, we'll continue to make the assessments as we go forward, keeping in mind that the actual reconciliation doesn't occur until 24. Um, and keeping in mind also, Warwick, you know, we issue these reports every every six months and that transparency is really important. But there are certainly challenges ahead and, as the Minister has said on, on numerous occasions as well, um, you know, the, the achievement of the efficiency measures to cover the 450, gigalitres of extra environmental water, um, you know, that won't be achieved and remains very challenging.
15: On the subject of water resource plans, there's, there's mm. sort of two separate report grades here, so to speak. One which is very positive for Victoria, Queensland, South Australia and the ACT saying those plans are done and progress is on track. Mm. For New South Wales mm. though, this report is highly critical with literally the opposite result in the red for New South Wales on the report card. Why are New South Wales so far behind?
8: Well, it's probably a question better directed to New South Wales, although I would say, you know, as of today, uh, we have received the, the remaining uh, New South Wales water resource plans. Now, New South Wales had the largest sort of component to do most of the heavy lifting. They had 20 of the 33 plans and yes, the report was at a point in time in December and at that stage, four had been uh, accredited and we had received a number of uh, other plans for, for assessment. Uh, as of today, literally today the uh, you know, New South Wales Minister has announced that the remainder of those plans have, have been uh, submitted for assessment. So, so you, know, you we'll have, have to, all
15: 20 now?
8: We now have all 20 plans Warwick and we'll have to go through the very extensive progress process of assessing them um, you know, against all 55 requirements that water resource plans are assessed against and that's going to take some time.
15: Convenient timing from New South Wales isn't it?
8: Oh, look, I won't speculate on that, Warwick. We're very pleased that we've got them. And and, you know, our task is now to to get in and and, and make that assessment against the requirements. It's a very extensive process. How (laughs)
15: long do you need to work through those plans before you can accredit them? Will that be done by 2024?
8: Uh, look, it, it's a decision ultimately for the minister to, to accredit them. The, the authority will make recommendations. Look, they they are significant documents, and they do take a considerable amount of time. I really wouldn't want to speculate as to how long that would take, Warwick. Um, you know, it takes as long as it takes, and that's not a cop out. We 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 just have to be very diligent in the way in which we go about it. Every single water resource plan is assessed against fifty five requirements, um, and we have to go through that for for each and every one and Um, you know, whilst there's a, there's a long queue there, there's only so many we can do at any one time. So we'll work very diligently and with an absolute sense of urgency through that, but. It's going to take some time. How long? That's a tough question I probably can't answer, but, you know, we'll do it. Uh,
15: and just on the subject of water recovery, which is a lo- what a lot of people see the Murray-Darling Basin Plan as, uh, you say you 98% of surface water, 92% of groundwater is recovered. The little bits that you're being held back uh, is due to the New South Wales water res- re- Water Resource Plan. So will that be reconciled in the near future, do you think? <laughs>
8: Well, look, I mean, the the important piece with New South Wales or WRPs is it brings the states within the regulatory framework of the Inspector General. um, And and until those water resource plans are accredited by the Minister, we sort of have to put in place, um, if you like, different oversight arrangements. So bringing um, all of the states into the regulatory framework, I think that is uh, incredibly important. In terms of the water recovery task. yeah, there is um, a component of bridging the gap. Now, that's not directly related to New South Wales WRPs. That's a that's across the basin where there are um, you know some areas of, of shortfall to uh, recover that water. And then the second component is to look at the 605 gigalitres of supply and constraints, and then the 450 of environmental. So you sort of got to view it in those those three boxes, if you like. Warwick. Is
15: this an important document ahead of the ministers, fr- the water ministers from the states and the federal minister meeting later this month?
8: Oh look, it certainly helps, Warwick. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is the ninth in the series. We do it every six months. You know, the task of the MDBA is to you know be be transparent, you know, ensure accountability and and really holding the states to and and the commons to account for the commitments they've made under the Basin Plan. You know, how they do that is, of course, up to them. But our task is very much about transparently reporting on progress. And so, yes, in that regard, having this report, um, you know, available uh, and in the public domain is certainly helping focus the mind on where the work needs to be done
1: the CEO of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Andrew McConville. Two weeks ago, I mentioned I was on the Murray River filming for Landline, and that story, which touches on lots of the stuff Warwick and Andrew were chatting about just then, airs on Sunday. You'll hear from irrigators, basin community leaders, First Nation leaders and ecologists in a very thorough report by a friend of the show, Kath Sullivan. It's on 12.30 on Sundays on ABC TV and any time after that on iView. But right now, stick around for some of the best friends of the show, my Saturday morning colleagues right here on RN.
2: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.